0: If you like Trek experts, you'll love The 430 Movie, available wherever you listen to podcasts or at 430movie.com. Join us every week as we program exclusive fantasy theme weeks full of the movies you grew up on.
1: Boogie down with reformed double girl, Chase Masterson, as she takes you inside Discovery every week on the all-new Star Trek podcast, Disco Nights. From the producers of *Inglorious Treksperts, wherever you listen to The 430 Movie, and keep looking at the stars hey this is Mark A Altman
0: co-host of Inglorious Trexperts. and if you're a fan of Battlestar Galactica and who isn't check out my new oral history of Battlestar Galactica with Ed Gross so say we all it spans the complete history of Battlestar Galactica from the 1978 series to Ronald Moore's brilliant reinvention and even Galactica 1980 available from tour books wherever books are sold <laughs> Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And this is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trek Experts. Welcome to an exciting episode of Inglorious Trek Experts because you know what year this year is, Darren Doctorman? I do. It is
1: 2019.
0: You know what that means? I do. On December 7th, it is the 40th anniversary of Star Trek. The motion picture,
1: completing its 40th year of existence.
0: Wow, it's it's pretty extraordinary. So we had to bring in a really extraordinary guest here to join us in order to talk about uh, about this, and it, it will be the first of many deep dives into Star Trek: The Motion Picture this year. Many
1: such journeys are possible.
0: <laughs> so I want to welcome uh, welcome back uh, to the show. Um, you know him uh, from his uh, observations on YouTube, uh, writer, producer. Um, on um, uh, the um, Hills Are in Red for Warner Brothers. Uh, he was a producer on Agent Cody Banks. And, of course, the uh, director, writer, and editor of uh, the uh, also celebrating an anniversary, uh, Free Enterprise, celebrating its 20th anniversary this wow. year. Welcome back to uh, Robert Meyer Burnett.
2: Well, first, unlike Lieutenant Ilea, thank you for having me, but my oath of celibacy is not... <laughs> On record. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> so That's let's get that
0: oh. out of the way right now. Oh my God! Ilea was an O cell. <laughs> an O cell. Wow. And you never did say goodbye. No. <laughs> um. Anyway, well, look. This is this is uh, this is so exciting because you know Star Trek the motion picture looms so large for the three of us in our formative in our association with Star Trek, in our love for movies, in our childhood, um, which continues to this day. uh, (laughs) And so we really felt like on the podcast, uh, we want to celebrate what we consider, if not the best Trek film, uh, certainly the most significant, most important uh, Star Trek film of all time. It
1: took our fandom and exploded it into Warp Drive. It, it really it really put it on a different plane of existence, a new form of life.
0: We have attempted to explain ad infinitum on this show what it meant to live in that desert uh, in, in the 70s with no new Star Trek content and then to constantly be teased yeah. with a new TV show, a movie, another TV show. It's coming back. It's not coming back. And then to have this giant motion picture come out on december 7th and you know it 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 was ushered in with this overture it was one of the last movies to have an overture the black hole was actually the last movie to have an overture (laughs) but we'll we'll ignore that for the moment which came out two weeks later uh, and which we will not be celebrating on inglorious Spurts this year Um, some other podcast will celebrate that inglorious black (laughs) spurts what no that doesn't work (laughs) that's not a does (laughs) inglorious hole spurts
1: no. Nope, we that don't doesn't work that either. either. That's
0: a whole different thing on the internet. But I don't know what um you know, we're, we're not going to talk about the black hole. That solves that problem. We've so already we, talked too much about the black hole. We're going to focus on Star Trek the Motion Picture. And um, again, just just it was it, it's hard to convey the excitement of that moment when that picture debuted. But there was so much going on with it. There were McDonald's Happy Meals. Mm -hmm. There were toys. There was um, all kinds of of, of stuff. Um, It was one of the reasons they didn't want to push the release date. Right. You know, they always say blind bidding, that they were locked into that date and they were going to make it come
1: hell or high water. But there was also all the merchandise. It was a huge merchandise push. And, you know, many of them were, let's just say, not... Exactly, good decisions, but many of them were. I mean, the, the McDonald's Happy Meal was the first branded Happy Meal. Uh, they had released the Happy Meal, I think, about four months earlier as just this generic thing where you got a, a burger and fries and a drink for a kid's meal. But the Star Trek meals, as they called them, were a huge explosion of tie in connection to McDonald's, which was a huge national. And international concern.
0: And it truly made you happy.
1: Absolutely. Because it was Star Trek. I still have my collection that was gifted to me by our dear friend Alan Spencer.
0: But, Rob, was there anything more significant than the Star Trek, the motion picture novelization?
2: No. And the novelization came out before the movie did. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it was, you guys did a great job setting up. What people should remember is the fact that they made this movie. It wasn't just a movie; it was the most expensive movie ever made at the Mm -hmm. time. And they brought back the TV actors. Right? Like, who would have ever thought in this day and age? Never been done before. I mean, now we've had an X Files movie. I saw the trailer for the Downton Abbey movie this morning. (laughs) They don't even name (laughs) the the actors, the motion picture. But (laughs) so now it's not unusual. But back then, to have Hollywood make this kind of a film and bring back all of our cast, yeah was something, in my mind... I mean, Star Trek was, like, really my religion. Mm-hmm. And it came out, I was 12 years old, I was in seventh grade, but when that novelization came out, I was already a fiend for Star Trek books. I'd read all the Blish uh, novelizations uh, of the episodes, the, the the Star Trek logs that Alan Dean Foster wrote, the photo novels, and all the original Bantam novels up to that point. Right. To get a novelization of Star Trek The Motion Picture written by Gene Roddenberry himself, yeah. and when you first... I couldn't get home fast enough. I was reading it on the bus. There are footnotes in that book yeah. that explain other things. Like there is a a term a term that a Vulcan term about friendship right. that, that that slash phyla phyla that that slash fiction. It, it, it gave it gave like legitimacy to slash fiction. Right. I don't know if Roddenberry was doing that on purpose, but that that book was so chock full of. Of of just information about the Star Trek future that you never it had never come out before
1: yeah and I I don't know about you but I read it before that I saw the movie oh me too yeah twice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it it really primed me for seeing the film, and it made it you know much more enjoyable to me because I understood
0: it already. That's so funny. I I, I think I read a couple of chapters, but I I resisted the urge mm. to read the whole book because you know I didn't want to have it uh, uh spoiled for me. But I definitely read the introductions. You know, now speaking of the introductions, what, what's so unique about this book? And before we even talk about it, I have to say a lot of people are laboring on delusion because. Star Wars novelization, which also came out before the movie, right. was written "quote unquote" by George Lucas, but it was really written by Alan, Alan Dean Foster. Foster. Mm-hmm. Okay, the Star Trek novelization, despite rumors to the contrary, was indeed written by Gene Roddenberry. It was yes. not ghost written. It was written by Gene Roddenberry, and um, there's a great story in my book Fifty Year Mission, where Harold Livingston. Mm-hmm uh bemoans the fact that, you know, him and, and, and Gene were fighting like cats and dogs and it was very competitive and they were rewriting each other and the studio sort of tolerated Roddenberry but really liked Harold better, you know, and liked his, his approach to the script. And at one point, uh Roddenberry really dug the knife into to Livingston <laughs> because he says, oh, I just signed the deal to write the novelization. They're paying me $400,000. <laughs> and Livingston's like, well, he got the last laugh. Yeah, <laughs> And uh, in fact, it was a huge deal because this was the first of the Star Trek books to be published by Pocket Books because right. Bantam had had a ton of success uh, under uh, Lindell Ray, uh, publishing Star Trek throughout the 70s. They made it what it was. Right. With the log books, the, the original novels, um, the, uh, the, the, the James Blish books. But Pocket spent a ton of money to get the rights to Star Trek and would continue to publish it to this day, um, the Star Trek novels. But it all started with the novelization of Star Trek, the motion picture.
2: Well, as you pointed out, the fact that Roddenberry wrote it meant, in my mind, like this weird demarcation between books and filmed entertainment, what's canon, what right. isn't. That novelization was canon. Yeah, there's everything, no question. Absolutely. Everything in it was canon. The new humans or whatever. There's right? so much wacky stuff and so much great information that I, I I I I wish that I could have mainlined that novel, but it took time to read. And I, I it was the first book in my life I ever read once and then immediately started
0: reading it again. You know what? I did the same thing. So, you know, it's so so funny. You're probably sitting at home saying, Well, I'm not 100 years old like you guys. So, (laughs) I don't, I didn't read it. It's out of print. I I couldn't possibly uh, have any experience with this book. So, I I don't know why I'm even listening to this stupid podcast. Well, I got news for you. Got a treat, real treat for you. (laughs) We have taken the liberty of having. We. Well, Darren Dockerman, okay? <laughs> Darren, I, w- I mean, I was going to give you credit, but if, if you're that fucking vain. Yes, I am. Um, I am, uh, damn it. <laughs> and narcissism. Fine. Darren <laughs> has, has has kindly recorded excerpts from the novel, yep. which we will uh, play for you throughout this as we talk about it, so you can share in the experience of reading what is this really gonzo novelization? <laughs> because as you will see, as they alluded to, uh, there's mention of the new humans, um, um, uh, Captain Kirk's mother's love coach, yeah. uh, all of uh, uh, Gene Roddenberry's familiar obsessions find newfound life in the novel. Um, uh, multiple partners, uh, sexual partners <laughs> that most people have on Earth. Um, it, you know, it we, also is, you got to remember, this was written in the late 70s, where New Age... Was really at its height, the new age spirituality. It was the 60s had given away, given, you know, which was a very different kind of spirituality. The 70s was crystals and all kinds of bizarre things and pyramids, key parties and pyramids and chariots of the gods and all that finds its way into this book.
1: Well, we've selected sections from the book that are specifically Roddenberry esque. And uh, different enough from the film that I think you'll find them interesting in there uh, to compare and contrast. And may I just
2: say that I, I heard you listen. I, I heard one of these excerpts, and you're a fantastic <laughs> reader of Star Trek books. I, I dare say that you should be hired, and they should go through the entire canon of eight hundred, nine hundred plus Star Trek novels, and you should be you should record them all.
1: Well, that would be interesting. I. I'm fine if they just hire me to do motion picture. I I'd be fine with that. For the 40th anniversary. For the 40th anniversary. Hey, I
0: want to point out the book is out of print. I don't know how easy it is to get a hold you of these. You can get days. it on Kindle. It's you on can Kindle. Still get it on it Kindle. is. Oh, okay. So all, all you uh,
1: newfangled folks there, you okay. can uh, get it on your Kindle. No,
0: I guess nothing goes out of print on digital anymore. Right, right. The the Library of Alexandria pales in comparison to Amazon. Um
1: I I I want to get into the first section please, if we can. Please. Let's do that. Uh, it's it's the preface written ostensibly, in-universe by James T. Kirk to this adventure. And uh, you'll hear he uh, is a little miffed with how he and his compatriots have been portrayed in the popular media uh, and blames Roddenberry for it.
0: Yeah, it's great. So let's, let's take a listen to that. This is James T. Kirk introducing the Star Trek The Motion Picture novelization in 1979.
1: My name is James Tiberius Kirk. Kirk, because my father and his male forebears followed the old custom of passing along a family identity name. I received James because it was both the name of my father's beloved brother, as well as that of my mother's first love instructor. Tiberius, as I am forever tired of explaining, was the Roman emperor whose life, for some unfathomable reason, fascinated my grandfather Samuel. This is not trivial information. For example, the fact that I use an old-fashioned male surname says a lot about both me and the service to which I belong. Although the male surname custom has become rare among humans elsewhere, it remains a fairly common thing among those of us in Starfleet. We are a highly conservative and strongly individualistic group. The old customs die hard with us. We submit ourselves to starship discipline because we know it is made necessary by the realities of deep space exploration. We're proud that each of us has accepted this discipline voluntarily, and doubly proud when neither temptation nor jeopardy is able to shake our obedience to the oath we have taken. Some critics have characterized us of Starfleet as primitives, and with some justification. In some ways we do resemble our forebears of a couple of centuries ago more than we do most people today, We are not part of those increasingly large numbers of humans who seem willing to submerge their own identities into the groups to which they belong. I am prepared to accept the possibility that these so-called new humans represent a more highly evolved breed, capable of finding rewards in group consciousness that we more primitive individuals would never know. For the present, however, this new breed of human makes a poor space traveler, and Starfleet must depend on us primitives for deep space exploration. It seems an almost absurd claim that we primitives make better space travelers than the highly evolved, superbly intelligent, and adaptable new humans. The reason for this paradox is best explained in a Vulcan study of Starfleet's early years during which vessel disappearances, crew defections, and mutinies had brought deep space exploration to a near halt. This once controversial report diagnosed those mysterious losses as being caused directly by the fact that Starfleet's recruitment standards were dangerously high. That is, Starfleet Academy cadets were then being selected from applicants having the highest possible test scores on all categories of intelligence and adaptability. Understandably, it was believed that such qualities would be helpful in dealing with the unusually varied life patterns which starship crews encountered during deep space exploration. Something of the opposite turned out to be true. The problem was that, sooner or later, starship crew members must inevitably deal with life forms more evolved and advanced than their own. The result was that these superbly intelligent and flexible minds being sent out by Starfleet could not help but be seduced eventually by the higher philosophies, aspirations, and consciousness levels being encountered. I've always found it amusing that my academy class was the first group selected by Starfleet on the basis of somewhat more limited intellectual agility. It's made doubly amusing, of course, by the fact that our five-year mission was so well documented due to an ill-conceived notion by Starfleet that the return of the USS Enterprise merited public notice. Unfortunately, Starfleet's enthusiasm affected even those who chronicled our adventures, and we were all painted somewhat larger than life especially myself. Eventually I found that I had been fictionalized into some sort of modern Ulysses, and it has been painful to see my command decisions of those years so widely applauded, whereas the plain facts are that ninety-four of our crew met violent deaths during those years, and many of them would still be alive if I had acted either more quickly or more wisely. Nor have I been as foolishly courageous as depicted, I've never happily invited injury. I've disliked in the extreme every duty circumstance which has required me to risk my life. But there appears to be something in the nature of depictors of popular events which leads them to habit of exaggeration. As a result, I became determined that if ever again I found myself involved in an affair attracting public attention, I would insist that some way be found to tell the story more accurately. As some of you will know, I did become involved in such an affair, in fact an event which threatened the very existence of earth. Unfortunately, this has again brought me to the attention of those who record such happenings. Accordingly, although there may be many other ways in which this story is told or depicted, I have insisted that it is also to be set down in a written manuscript which would be subject to my correction and my final approval. This is that manuscript, presented to you here as an old-style printed book. While I cannot control other depictions of these events that you may see, hear, and feel, I can promise that every description, idea, and word on these pages is the exact and true story of Viger and Earth, as it was seen, heard, and felt by James T. Kirk. Okay. Well, that was great. <laughs> well, now we know how uh, Captain Kirk
0: really feels about Gene Roddenberry, <laughs> much uh, much like uh, Harold Livingston. Uh, the, the historical records, uh, right? The historical records, exactly. But you know, of course, Gene gets to um, his rebuttal. His
1: rebuttal is just as uh, just as fascinating, and in uh, in universe, and he treats it all very real. And this is one of the things that I love about his attitude toward this is that you know the you you know why you have a printed book because Kirk wanted something that would not change. Um, and uh, Roddenberry sort of explains why he comes back to... Uh, documenting these adventures. But I love
0: also how Shatner oh Shatner Kirk was talking about being the the people in Starfleet are the rugged individualist right. because those Nancy boy uh, uh, new humans, <laughs> new humans. Uh, are not capable of space exploration, <laughs> you know, and 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 he's named after his uh, his mother's love coach. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, I mean, I, I was going to say I don't know what Gene was smoking back then, but I, I have an I idea. I think we know. But you know there
2: there is a lot of there's a lot of Robert Heinlein in this, sure. you know, there's stranger in a strange land. And, you know, Valentine Michael Smith, there is a lot of stuff that was popularized in science fiction, along with the New Age movement of the of the sixties that gave way to the 70s. There is a lot of, of science fiction, a lot of cutting-edge 70s sci-fi. And I know because I was reading a lot of it at the time because I was mm-hmm. a member of the sci-fi book club. There was a lot of a lot of things that uh whether it had to do with sexuality and whether it had to do with what later became things like body modification. Right. It was really interesting. So he was also drawing a lot a lot of
0: what other science fiction writers of the time were also incorporating Actually, into the I loved work. the sci fi book club and that was when I was member and you got a lot of books that were only in paperback that they were released in hardcover. Yeah. Right. And uh, that's where I first learned about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I sure. got that. And, um but also I would read Locus, you know, which was it was it was it was it was like they curated for you, you know, right. in a way. And it was a, it was a wonderful thing. I mean things like that don't really You know, exist anymore. I don't know if there is a sci-fi book club still, but um, I can't imagine there would be. I don't know if there are book clubs anymore. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, another thing too about this this novel is that this novel was Star Trek. This was the first return to us, I think. Especially, it was legit Star Trek. We hadn't had any legit Star Trek since the animated series had gone off the air. This book was the first taste. Of it, of
1: of things to come, and it was, uh, canon, it obviously. was canon. It was canon.
0: Gene wrote it. How could you say it's not canon? Now, little things like the communicator, which were now embedded in your uh, cerebral cortex, uh, the, those those were never really adapted. Uh, it was also a chance for him to redress. Uh, any of the changes in this, the movie that he didn't like, right. um, you know, that were made by Harold Livingston, you'll notice in some cases some of the jokes are not there mm-hmm. um, that are in the movie. Um, there, there are other elements, other things that, that are not, that are written. Some of it is because the special effects weren't done. Right. So he's writing how he envisioned it, you, you know, uh, as opposed to the way it ultimately was visualized by Apogee and Doug Trumbull. Right. Um, so let's listen to Gene Roddenberry's introduction uh, to uh, the the novel and, and see what Gene has to say.
1: Considering Admiral James Kirk's comments in his own preface, it may seem strange that he chose me as the one to write this book. I was, after all, somewhat a key figure among those who chronicled his original five-year mission in a way which the Admiral has criticized as inaccurately larger than life. I suspect that the thing which finally recommended me to the Admiral was the fact that I have always cherished books as much as he does, or perhaps he thought I would be more trustworthy when working with words rather than with images. Either way, it is clear he knew that he could guarantee the accuracy of this by insisting that the manuscript be read and, where necessary, corrected by everyone involved in the events being described. Spock. Dr. McCoy, Admiral Nagura, Commander Scott, the Enterprise bridge crew, and almost everyone else listed on these pages have been given the opportunity to review every word describing the events in which they took any part. These final printed pages reflect their comments as well as Admiral Kirk's determination that this be the whole and full truth of what actually happened in the events described here. Finally, on a more personal note... Why am I concerning myself with the Enterprise and its crew once again? Having depicted them already with at least some popular success, could I have not given this same effort to new and freshly challenging subjects? Of course. Any civilized individual, whether author or not, one is hardly a prerequisite to the other, has no end to events and subjects clamoring for and doubtlessly deserving attention. Why Star Trek again? I suppose the real truth is that I have always looked upon the Enterprise and its crew as my own private view of Earth and humanity and microcosm. If this is not the way we really are, it seems to me that most certainly a way we ought to be. During its voyages the Starship Enterprise always carried much more than mere respect and tolerance for other life forms and ideas. It carried the more positive force of love for the almost limitless variety within our universe. It is this capacity for love for all things which has always seemed to me the first indication that an individual or a race is approaching adulthood. There may still be long and awkward years for humanity between now and maturity, but we have at least come within some reach of understanding that our own future can hold any new dimensions of challenge and happiness that we desire and deserve. While we humans may still be a considerable distance from understanding truth, or even of being able to cope with it, I believe that we are at last beginning to understand that love is somehow integral to truth. Perhaps it demarks the path leading there. Much of my pleasure in Kirk, Spock, McCoy, Uhura, Scotty, Chekhov, Chapel, and Rand had to do with such thoughts. I have always found some hope for myself in the fact that The Enterprise crew could be so humanly fallible and yet be some of those greater things, too. Yeah. Well, there you go. Gene Roddenberry.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. I never
2: get tired of listening to you do Gene Roddenberry, dude. (laughs) No, neither (laughs) did Shatner, apparently.
1: Well, he... uh, That was an interesting thing, because Shatner says he doesn't remember Gene's voice. But uh, he, he said... He assumed that since I did a pretty good version of his... That he thought that my Gene was uh, was probably good as well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: he doesn't remember Gene's that's, voice. That's what he said. He's trying to put it out that's of his mind. Well, it's been... Since I 91. Mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's been, what, 30 years? Yeah. Well, well, less than 30 years. 28 years, years yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, now I want to point out, this is also the anniversary this year of Star Trek V the right. 30th anniversary of Star Trek 5 it's also the 10th anniversary of uh, the first JJ uh, film that's right so um you know i'm sure we'll be doing individual episodes about Star Trek 5 and JJ's 2009 film but Star Trek the Motion Picture is really worthy of this deep di- deeper dive uh, that we'll be absolutely. doing throughout the year absolutely absolutely um, Maybe Final Frontier could could withstand a few episodes. Maybe <laughs> I, I'd like to get Bill for that. Maybe we can get Bill for that because
1: that would, that would sure be interesting.
0: That would be good. Well, we have some things we're kicking around for Star Trek Five, and um, and I, I I I there's some things I think would be great to do for the forty. I know you're getting a lot of t- t- tweets and things, people asking, will there be a an HD version of um uh, of the Director's Edition, which you were the visual effects supervisor on, and I know you don't have an answer for them, but
2: that's well, there certainly... is a new
1: ally.
0: In that
2: fight, as of this week, John Van Sitters got promoted. That's true. Uh, He's now in charge of the Star Trek brand. And while (laughs) I wish he had input into the the shows themselves, no one loves Star Trek more than John Van Sitters. And when he's never, he's always sort of been shackled, but I don't think that there's anybody who knows. We've never had an ally to get a 40th Mm -hmm. anniversary version done.
1: Unfortunately. The movies are still under the purview of Paramount. I know, and they hold all the cards, uh, especially for you know dealing with uh, you know further releases of their uh, of their films. On well, the value
0: so, of catalog titles, unfortunately, is is has
1: diminished. It's, it's diminished, uh, you know. So, but we can only we can only hope there are always possibilities. With, <laughs> with the two thousand one <laughs> theatrical
2: release, maybe if they did a four K restoration. In IMAX or 3D well, or something, you
1: can see how Warner Brothers treats their catalog. They revere it and they value it, and they pass on that value and get value in return from the audience. Uh, so hopefully, uh, lessons can be learned from the way they treat things, and hopefully, the uh, Paramount is able to, you know, transfer some of that into their catalog.
2: Maybe we can get B. Joe and John
0: Trimble to start a letter-writing campaign. Yeah, that'll work. Um,
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you
0: know, there's a scene in the novel that a lot of people were curious about. You know, people thought uh, that it was a deleted scene. It was not. Mm-hmm. It, was uh, never never it was never shot. the movie, was never shot. It had been... There had been versions of the scene in previous drafts when it was in thy image, uh, which, of course, is the confrontation with Admiral Nagora. And it's a really interesting scene in the book. I think it it really shows Captain Kirk, um, you know, being strategic and very right. smart. You see why, you know, it's not just like you know
1: he won the Enterprise back; he got her, you know. But but how did he do that? Right. And and you know we'll we'll listen to it and uh, you'll see. We'll talk about it afterwards. This must be rather difficult for you," said Nagura. Captain Decker has been something of your protege, hasn't he? yes sir but i don't see how that makes it difficult i've recommended him for jobs in the past because he was the best man available in this case he is not kirk knew himself to be motivated and determined as he had not been for years and he had powerful arguments to use The last five years of Enterprise Logs supported his contention that Nagura's greatest need was not a captain familiar with a rebuilt vessel, but rather one with the greatest possible experience in dealing with deep-space unknowns, such as the one now hurtling toward Earth. At first Nagura had seemed indifferent and impatient, but Kirk had seen that the commanding admiral was also troubled and tired. Logs aside, was today's Kirk a better captain than the alert and upcoming young Decker, How much had Kirk been damaged by almost three years on the ground in an unfamiliar and unhappy environment? Ordinarily, Kirk would never have risked this direct confrontation with the commanding admiral, but this was the first real challenge Kirk had faced in these past three years, and Nagura, however dynamic and fearsome his personality, was also the man who had manipulated him, used him. This was a battle that Kirk was determined to win." Kirk could see that Nagura was beginning to question the decision to use Decker, being unusually patient, incredibly so considering his reputation. It was becoming obvious that he must feel genuine regret over the way he had forced Kirk into flag rank. Kirk had been with Nagura for twelve minutes. He had never known a visitor or decision here to last that long. Then he felt a chill as Nagura came abruptly to his feet. The entire staff considered this at length, Jim said Nagura. I'm afraid that every point you've made has already been carefully considered. Admiral, these points were neither carefully nor properly considered since I was not present. Kirk knew that his only chance now was to challenge Nagura directly. And now that I am present, I submit that it is your responsibility to inform me of whatever negative arguments were made against my selection.' As a flag officer and a member of Nagura's staff, Kirk had both a right and an obligation to know of anything in his professional performance which his peers considered to be substandard. Nagura's eyes remained fixed on Kirk's as five seconds passed, then ten, twenty. Kirk fought to keep the slightest expression off his own face. He sensed that everything would be won or lost now in the next minute. "'How badly do you want her back?' The Enterprise? I can't deny it'll be pleasant to be back aboard her, Jim. I'm placing you on your honor. If there's the slightest chance that you are being motivated by anything other than professional considerations of intercepting whatever this is, trying to identify it, making contact with any life form... I don't understand the reference to honor, Hyakiro. I don't recall ever lying to you in the past, and I'm certain you never have to me. Kirk knew that he had won. He also believed that everything he had said or left unsaid was the whole and complete truth. Well, there you go, yeah, I mean, I think there's still a lot that I wanted from the scene that is not in the book mm-hmm. i i wanted to I wanted to feel a little more of the chess master Kirk mm. and that's kind of not there, right. Um there's a little there's a little head butting but it's you know it's very little. And- I love your Nagora voice though. <laughs> I love it. I, it's worth it for that. Uh, with the you price. know this was the scene that bummed
2: me out the most that was missing from the movie. Right. And it was one of those I, I don't know if you were like this way. I didn't have many friends I could be this way with but now everyone's always trying to outdo each other with how much knowledge they have about whatever it is that they love. But back in the day I couldn't get enough of telling people about this scene from the book. Right. Mm-hmm. And I do. You know, there was the scene, and I, I I, didn't know if it had been filmed or not, but I I wanted to see this scene. Yeah. I wanted to see this scene because I loved any time they showed another admiral or another...
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, expanding the world. Expanding, expanding. the universe.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how could you have not had this scene in the movie? Especially when Scotty says, oh, I doubt it was that easy with Nagura." Right. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. I mean... I, I remember to my, my grandfather took me to a convention in 1980 um, to, uh, in, in New Jersey, of all places. I don't know what we were doing in New Jersey. God help us. But um, they were giving out fly. I can't believe I remember this. These flyers that were like – it was to start a letter-writing campaign to get um, the studio to re-release Start the Motion Picture in 70 millimeter. Um, uh, which it was never released. I yet. know which it was never <laughs> released. They wanted to get it to re- release in 70 millimeter and then and restore all the. George k was the guest at the convention <laughs> and it would restore all these scenes that were cut and it would have a list of like scenes including um, uh, the Kirk's confrontation with Admiral DeGara <laughs> oh. and I remember that thing and it was like here's who you should write to and right. and get them to to you know uh, to, to say release it in the form that it deserves to be seen and I mean ultimately <laughs> you did that. Uh, 25, 30 years later, but um, it's kind of hysterical that this thing was... Um, it was never shot. It was never shot, I know, but <laughs> it, it's one of those great missing scenes that right. was never shot. It's like the Magnificent Ambersons where exactly. it was shot and destroyed. Right. This, this was never shot, destroyed, nothing ever happened to it. But if you want to see, you know, people like, oh, the ABC cut, you know, it was like, <laughs> uh, oh, it was in the ABC cut. No, no, it wasn't.
1: <laughs> Who would you guys have cast as Admiral Um, I probably would have... Uh, gone to the gentleman that played the um, head of the Nakatomi Corporation in uh, Die Hard. Oh. Uh, I forget his name, forgive me. Oh, uh, who played Takagi? Yes. Yeah. yeah, what was his name? He died
0: last year. Yeah. Shinobi, Shinobu. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't remember his name, but yeah, the guy who played Takagi, he's great. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking, Tahj Mafuni. Oh well, yeah. I was going to say <laughs> he would have to be, you know, from
2: Tahj Mafuni. How great would it have been if he was like this very stoic? Right. If he was like, or if he played totally against type, right? You know, but he, how cool would that have been? I mean,
0: he was supposed to be the Klingon in Planet Titan. He was right. going to be the villain. That's one of the great what ifs in Star Trek history. You yeah. know, it's like had Toshiro Mafuni played. You know, that's why when people say, "Wasn't Christopher Lloyd great as Kruege in Star yeah. Trek 3, It's like. No, Tashira Mifuni would have been great as <laughs> yeah. uh, a Klingon. And we got to see him a year later in Shogun. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. magical. So, yeah, absolutely. So, that that that's a, a, another glimpse into what could have been and and what's the Led Zeppelin song what was and could not be right. or
1: whatever it is. Okay. Now, I, the next scene is uh, one of my favorites in the film, um and it's even more interesting in the novel. Uh because it gives you a little more uh um attitude from all of the characters. Oh yeah. They're yeah. they're really pissed off at each other. And it's really interesting to see, especially uh it's it's told from the point of view of McCoy, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh this is the scene in the officer's lounge and uh you'll hear. It's uh it's fascinating. I, I, I love when um
0: You know, basically, Spock's a total dick to McCoy, and McCoy is not having it. And
1: McCoy hits him right back. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Okay, here we go. The officer's lounge was located three decks below the bridge at the forward edge of the command superstructure. The observation ports here looked out over the starship's vast saucer section and provided the best shipboard views of space and, at warp speeds, of hyperspace. With the ship in warp drive, the myriads of stars visible from here were coalesced into a mass ahead of them. And the starship's incredible velocity was obvious even there, as occasional stars would seem to abruptly slip free of the rest, whipping brightly past the starship to vanish into the reverse coalescence of stars behind them. McCoy liked the officer's lounge. It pleased him that Starfleet could understand the necessity of providing luxury like this, especially for those whose years of service and distinction merited it. And it was made doubly pleasant by the fact that entry here was forbidden to no one. Its exclusive use by command-grade officers was merely a tradition, which had grown out of the honest respect which Starfleet's senior officers had earned. The Vulcan came in, still cold and aloof. "'Reporting as ordered, Captain.' McCoy felt half-angry at, half-pitying. Despite the cold Vulcan exterior being presented by Spock, McCoy had known him too well for too many years to miss the small signs of human torment that were present, too. It annoyed the doctor that Spock, so perfectly logical in other things, felt compelled to repudiate his human bloodline. It also troubled him that the strain of this might push Spock past some breaking point. "'Sit down, please,' Kirk said. Spock remained standing. "'Sir, I would appreciate Dr. McCoy absenting himself from this interview.' McCoy saw Kirk's look harden. "'I want him here,' Kirk said. "'Sit down.' This was unmistakably given as an order. Even then, for a moment, it looked as if Spock would refuse. Finally he sat, but formally, rigidly, his eyes centered on the captain alone. "'Kirk decided to maintain the official tone in his voice. "'Your arrival report stated that while on Vulcan "'you sensed unusually strong thought emanations "'which seemed to be part of some entity or entities "'traveling in this direction. "'Can you tell us any more about these thoughts?' "'Spock answered equally formally. "'I could sense only what seemed an almost "'omniscient pattern of perfect logic, sir.' I can explain nothing more. I understand nothing more." "'Have you had any contact with this consciousness since then?' asked McCoy. Spock kept his eyes on Kirk, presenting his answer there. Affirmative. Since arriving aboard, a second contact in which I sensed some puzzlement. Also some urgency in needing some answer. As to the nature of the puzzle, I have no clue. "'Is that all of it so far?' asked Kirk. Two mind-contacts with something out here? Nothing more?' Spock wished Kirk's question had not been asked so broadly. "'On Vulcan I seemed for a moment to be also sensing your thoughts, Captain. "'It felt as if you were wondering whether the Klingon cruisers and crews were actually destroyed,' or had been converted into exhibits of some sort. Kirk's expression told McCoy there had indeed been such a thought, although this surprised McCoy much less than the fact that Spock had admitted sensing it, considering his present unfriendliness. It was common knowledge that telepathic rapport between Vulcan and human was possible only in cases of extraordinarily close friendship. Kirk nodded casually. I must have been wishing that I could discuss all this with you. I have acquired the habit of having you around during emergencies. McCoy watched as Spock continued to sit, staring expressionlessly straight ahead. Why couldn't Spock respond to him? Kirk could hardly risk begging one of his officers for friendship. I heard you went to Gaul after you left, Kirk said. Were you studying with the Vulcan masters? That question invades my personal life, Captain. Emotion, Spock? McCoy had seen the barest flicker of expression at Kirk's mention of the Masters. Is it possible you failed? Spock turned slowly toward McCoy, acknowledging his presence for the first time. Your deductions do you credit, Doctor, if your puerile curiosity does not. "'My professional curiosity, science officer!' McCoy was capable of a formally official tone, too. "'And am I seeing anger now?' McCoy had seen a glint of it, even though Spock had composed his expression almost instantly. It was precisely this kind of thing which had made Spock object to the doctor's presence here. He had no choice but to nod stiff acknowledgment of the truth of McCoy's observation, but he addressed himself back to Kirk. I had believed that a discipline at Gaul would exorcise my human half. I did not succeed. I have not yet succeeded in fully accomplishing that. The fact that you had sensed patterns of perfect logic, Kirk had to ask, does that have something to do with your being here? It is my only hope of accomplishing what the masters could not said Spock. "'Or isn't it lucky we happen to be going your way?' said McCoy. "'Let it drop, Bones,' Kirk said. But he kept his tone firm as he continued to Spock. "'You are my science officer. I'll expect an immediate report on anything further you learn or sense from here on.' "'I have accepted service here as a Starfleet officer,' said Spock stiffly. Kirk nodded, accepting the rebuke. This has been painful for me, too. Thank you. Spock turned and went out without a word. Kirk and McCoy exchanged a troubled look. Then Kirk turned to go, too. Jim! called McCoy. Kirk turned back and McCoy waited until certain Spock was out of hearing range. However seriously Vulcans take their oaths, remember that everything and everyone has a breaking point. Kirk shook his head. I can't believe Spock would ever be turned against us. Jim, if that consciousness is as enormous and powerful as Spock describes it, he may have no choice.
0: Yeah, there you have it. That's yeah. a great, great scene. <laughs> Although you notice the whole, um, he makes a big deal out of uh, Spock sitting down, but there's none of that. Won't you please
1: right, sit right. down? He doesn't make a joke
0: out of yeah, it. Yeah, but, yeah. But you
2: know, I don't know if uh, that was, that was really a visual Absolutely. joke. Yeah, and I, And yeah. by the way, Shatner's delivery of that is one of my favorite Shatnerisms. Especially with the, the gestures frustration, with frustration hands. Yeah. And, and, just, well, a, and mean, the way it's set up.
0: Obviously, Rob, because we have so much fun with it in Free Enterprise where Eric McCormick is sitting in his office with Shatner yeah. and Shatner's pacing around and he says to Shatner, won't well, you please sit down? It's so, And Shatner,
2: of course... He would never have known what we were doing. Not knowing. We we did that a number of times when we were making Free
0: Enterprise. And you and I were sitting behind the cameras just giggling. Realizing this stuff were references and him not knowing. Although we were often surprised because sometimes it, it was like there was he knew more than he was letting on. But remember we we made that joke about Angelique Pettyjohn, oh, yes, and he came I over remember. and sort of said, "Who is Angelique Pettyjohn?" And uh, he uh, gave uh, us a little <laughs> look like he knew very damn well who exactly. Angelique Pettyjohn was, yes. and then walked off with a smile on his face, mm-hmm. um, which made us smile even bigger. Indeed, well, it
1: did. Speaking of a smile on their face, this next scene, I think, uh, Gene Roddenberry had a lot of smiles on his face when he was writing this <laughs> uh, because it's. It's very in his uh, sort of uh, naughty schoolboy uh, manner. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. It's pretty uh, mates all in a row. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's probably the naughtiest scene in any Star Trek uh, book ever written.
0: Yeah, and of course that is Ailea uh, materializing in the uh, Sonic Shower, and uh, it's funny because of course that movie was a G rated movie, and there was discussion as to you know how, how much are going to do this? How, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know how how are you going to do it? How are you going to show her? Is there going to be nudity? You know how is this how is this going to work? And you know the feeling it was the feeling like we cannot afford to alienate one viewer, so this is going to be G rated this movie. We're not going to have violence. We're not going to have anything that's going to push this in the PG or um, that is going to cause anyone not to bring their kids to the movie. So there was no question that whether it was Persis as an actress uh, or um, who's just stunningly beautiful or uh, but clearly they were never going to show nudity. But that did not stop
1: Gene from writing about it, (laughs) describing it very specifically (laughs) uh, in this scene. A pair of security guards were waiting at the cabin marked Ilea, Lieutenant. NAV 07719. Spock's eyebrow came up on seeing the name on the door. Kirk had learned from Chekhov's panel that Intruder Alert was in from their former navigator's quarters, and this had prompted him to leave Decker behind at the con. One of the security men had an identity sensor trained on the door. Its tiny monitor was displaying digital readings 165, 160, 155. "'Whatever's in there was white-hot only a few minutes ago,' said a security officer. "'Fascinating,' said Spock. Kirk nodded, aware that the Vulcan referred to the fact that neither smoke nor flame-alarms had been triggered, and since a flare of temperatures that high should have caused something to burn. The aliens who had taken Lieutenant Ilea from them must have sent over something unusual to her cabin. Whatever it might be, it was no place for Will Decker—' who had reacted with such anguish at the Delta navigators' disappearance. Other security details were hurrying in to close off bulkheads and handle the other intruder-alert routines. Kirk motioned to one guard to accompany himself and Spock. No weapons, he cautioned. Kirk cracked the door open slowly until they could peer into what seemed to be an empty cabin. As he expected, there was no sign of the frightening plasma energy probe, The alien certainly realized by now that it was the wrong kind of device for an investigation of the Enterprise crew. Spock was indicating that the guard's identity sensor readouts. Whatever was in the cabin, its temperature had dropped to 38 degrees and was beginning to hold steady near that temperature. As they moved carefully in through the door, Kirk could make out a faint scent of Ilea still lingering in the fabric of her lounge bed. The heat source is in the sonic shower said Spock. What the hell? Kirk spun quickly toward the cabin's dressing alcove. Through the transparent door of the hydrosonic shower, he saw something moving. It was definitely a body, looking very human, or delton. The heat they had read in there. Some malfunction in the sonic cubicle? Or had something been cooling itself down to normal enterprise temperatures there? Then, Whatever it was, it moved closer to the transparent door. It was, unmistakably, a naked female. Kirk stepped to the cabin's master control panel, touched the sonic's door switch. The transparency slid open. It was Ilea. Lovely, almost unbearably lovely in her nudity. Then Kirk felt a warning touch from Spock. This is not our navigator, Spock said quietly. But it almost certainly was Ilea, except that there was some sort of a glowing light from her throat. Kirk found his eyes shifting from the tiny light glow to what seemed impossibly lovely hard-tipped breasts which were at this moment swinging around to point directly at him. Damn, it had to be Delton pheromones that were doing this to him. This meant Spock was wrong. She had to be Ilea. Ensign, said Kirk, get Dr. McCoy up here fast. It took the young security officer a moment to force his eyes away from the Delton nakedness. Kirk knew how difficult it was. He had just realized that the pointing of those two breasts toward himself had simply meant that she was turning to look toward them. The eyes! They seemed devoid of living warmth. Was this somehow Ilea's dead body? A corpse reanimated and controlled by the alien? Kirk's direction of thought was bringing his attention back to her naked body as he stepped toward her in the sonic cubicle. Her cold eyes followed his movements as he punched in a dress code, then slid the transparent door closed long enough for a leisure robe to form over her nakedness. What was the look Spock had given him? Amusement or pity? Apparently, Delton Pheromones created no sensual excitement in the Vulcans, otherwise he would understand the wisdom of putting some garment on her. The transparent door slid open, and the Deltan form spoke. "'You are the Kirk Unit?' Kirk saw Spock cock an ear as if half understanding. The voice came out unpracticed, like something mechanical trying to sound alive. "'You are the Kirk Unit?' "'Remarkable,' said Spock. It learns very fast. I'm Captain James T. Kirk, commanding USS Enterprise, Kirk replied, feeling somewhat foolish saying this to what looked like his own navigator. Was Leah really this incredibly sensuous? I have been programmed to observe and record normal functions of the carbon-based units infesting USS Enterprise. Programmed by whom? asked Kirk. "'It is important we communicate with them.' The probe seemed puzzled. "'If you require a designation, I was programmed by Vija. Its voice was becoming more understandable, taking on some of the navigator's throaty Delton vocal tone. The Vulcan was watching it in absolute fascination, but it was intellectual fascination. The Delton sense were clearly wasted on Vulcans.' ''Who is Viger? Kirk asked. ''V'ger is that which programmed me.'' ''Are you referring to someone in the larger vessel out there? The captain or the leader of whoever is aboard it?'' The door opened and McCoy rushed in. ''Jim, what's? Th-? McCoy's trained eye took her in for only a moment before his medical tricorder came out fast and he began a scan of the female form. ''Who is Viger? "'Kirk repeated. "'Vija is that which seeks the Creator.' "'Kirk had difficulty believing that his ears heard correctly. "'The Creator?' "'The considerable astonishment on Spock's features said he must have heard these same words, too. "'Jim, this is a mechanism,' it was McCoy, indicating Ilea. "'Kirk stared at the ship's doctor. "'The stealth and female form, as far as his eyes could tell, looked exactly real.' It had reacted with Deltan sensuality and sexuality by releasing pheromones, and Kirk knew that both he and the security ensign could testify to their reality. Spock was making his own scan with the doctor's tricorder. I believe this form replaces the plasma energy probe which had been sent to examine our vessel, Captain. It may even be the same probe using the ilea pattern it carried back with it. Kirk turned to the female form, making his question a demand. "'Where is Lieutenant Ilea?' "'That unit no longer functions,' the mechanism's tone sounded factual. "'I have been given its form to more readily communicate with the carbon-based units' infesting enterprise.' "'Carbon-based units?' the security guard said, feeling some ominous undertone. "'Humans, Ensign Chavez.' McCoy said dryly. Us. One of Spock's eyebrows had raised as the probe use of the word infesting. He seemed to find it interesting, but Kirk had a more pressing question which must come first. V'ger's ship, Kirk asked. Why does it travel in toward the third planet of the solar system directly ahead? V'ger travels to the third planet to find the creator. It stunned them. Whatever Viger might be, some single great entity or an entire alien race, it was simply impossible that anything capable of that vessel's technology could believe that Earth was the location of anything that could be called creator. Kirk tried to pursue it sensibly. What is the creator? he asked. That which creates, answered the Ilya probe. The mechanical sound in its voice was almost gone. It also seemed to move more gracefully, as if becoming accustomed to the use of the various mechanisms making up its body. What does Vija want of the Creator? To join with him? Join with the Creator, Spock asked. How? Vija and the Creator will become one. What does the Creator create? asked Spock. The creator is that which created Vija. the Ilea probe was saying. This perfectly circular logic suggested that there might be some considerable communications gulf between them and V'ger. It might be difficult, perhaps impossible, to share common concepts or values. This probe had been sent to study them, and it seemed likely to Kirk that any findings accumulated here might be totally incomprehensible to whoever sent the probe. Who is V'ger? Kirk asked again. Vija is that which seeks the creator. Kirk wondered if this might not be the literal truth. The life-forms over there were likely to be as advanced as their enormous vessel, or their probes. What better use of their knowledge and technology than to seek the source of themselves and the universe? Kirk could accept that as philosophically noble and even proper, but he also knew that nothing definable as creator would be found on that very ordinary planet ahead and what might happen to that very ordinary world if the crew of that gigantic vessel felt disappointed with it. The ILEA probe had apparently waited long enough. I am ready to commence my observations, it said. Doctor, said Spock quickly, a thorough examination of this probe might provide insight into those who manufactured it and how to communicate with them. McCoy agreed, nodding as he took an ILEA arm to escort it out. He was spun around off-balance. The gentle tug in its arm had been like trying to pull a building after him. It ignored McCoy, addressed Kirk. "'I am programmed to observe and record normal functioning procedures of the carbon-based units.' "'The examination is a normal function,' Kirk said with his old resourcefulness. The ILEA probe considered it a moment. "'You may proceed,' it said. Well there you go. I think yeah. we need to change the uh <laughs> um
0: the setting on this podcast to explicit. <laughs> um that was that was uh, an interesting little detour into I've, the mind I've, of Gene renoir I've Ronenberry. always
1: wondered what the film would have been like if Gene had had his way completely. If <laughs> if he'd been able to make it a completely adult film. I mean not adult <laughs> right film, right sure but, right, his version. His, of the... the the version of it in his mind.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think we get some insight into that uh, if you look at those early drafts of "In Thy Image," and I'd love to, in a future episode of our deep dive in the Star Trek: The Motion Picture Forty, look at some of those early drafts of "In Thy Image." Absolutely. Um, because um, you'll see. Because you know, I think I mentioned this before that uh, one of the drafts starts with. <laughs> You know, Kirk and the woman who's killed in the transporter accident, who was Admiral Nagura's aide, who uh, ends up, uh, and also his lover, uh, skinny dipping in San Francisco Bay, (laughs) you know, when Admiral Nagura calls and says he needs Kirk to come to uh, uh, Starfleet headquarters. Right. And, uh, yeah, that's – yeah. Anyway, the less said about that, the better.
1: Moving on, uh, speaking of Ilea – yeah another scene with uh this time we uh, get to know a little more about how decker operates and uh decker unit the decker unit and uh his uh his a little bit of his backstory with Ilea, and sort of fleshing that out a little bit. this is the scene that was in the special longer version and uh we brought it back for the directors edition as well um the scene where we learn about the uh, uh, Delton headband.
0: Yeah, you know, and I got to tell you, uh, uh, Darren. And I, I, again, this isn't really relevant to this episode, but I'd like to maybe one of these future episodes talk about how you made the decisions with the director's edition, working with Rawwise We can get some of the uh, the guys in here, like Mike, Mattessino, um, and mm-hmm. Dave Fine, um, because I'm I'm interested in sort of the differences between the ABC cut Mm -hmm. and the director's edition, because of course the ABC cut was the premiere of Star Trek, the motion picture on um, ABC Sunday night movie. And that was the first time we saw all this footage that had been cut out from the movie. And it was, I mean, at the time it was thrilling. Uh, And you didn't often see, uh, they'd done it with Superman, but to fill a two day time slot. Um, starting The Motion Picture was only one it night, It was only right? one night. So it was really wild to see all this new footage. It was
1: all these lifts that they'd taken out for time to be able to fit in within the two-hour uh, uh, screening uh, slot, um, to be able to fit in all the effects that hadn't yet been delivered. Right, right, right. So they took out these and then replaced them with visual effects, basically. Yeah. And there was no time to cut in any of it. All these lifts were put back in without consultation from Robert wise at all right uh, I believe Roddenberry okayed it and that's why they were in there uh, but uh,
0: including the fact that no one noticed when Kirk goes after Spock in the uh, spacesuit that uh, the, the effects weren't finished the and effects weren't finished and it was a
1: previous version of the spacesuit yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And correct yeah.
2: me if I'm wrong wasn't this the only version that was released on videotape at first? Um, it wasn't the only version, but, but I mean, it was late,
0: but this, it was the first version. It was
2: the ABC cut on uh, yes. no, no, video tape. tape.
0: It was only the ABC cut. It right. was not the theatrical, right? Version.
2: Not the theatrical version. And what was interesting is watching it over and over and over again. I was used to those extended scenes. And sure. at first I didn't realize that, oh, Kirk's coming out of an, un- you can see the scaffolding on yeah. the studio, <laughs> yeah.
0: on, the, on the soundstage ceiling. And I, I would say that you know if we're lucky enough to to to, to see you guys realize um, the the high def or 4K director's edition of Star Trek, I would hope that any future version of um, uh, 4K Blu-ray would have all the cuts of the movie for us completists. I
1: I would I would agree.
0: In much the way that Charlie DeLazarica's amazing Blade Runner collection absolutely has all the versions. And all the deleted scenes, uh, uh, along with a wonderful documentary, that is the proper way. Uh, and and I would hope that the director's edition would be released, and that there would be a new 4K transfer of the theatrical version as well. And then you know, look, the ABC cut. I don't. I, it's fine. However, you. Well, put let's it in there. let's listen to this uh, missing scene. Yeah, yeah. Let's take a look. This is. Uh, t- t- can you just tell us what we can expect from this?
1: Yeah. Well, this is the the uh, the scene in Ilya's quarters where. Uh, they try to remind the probe of who she was. Okay, great. Here we go. Although it was her duty to be here, Dr. Chapel felt uncomfortable in rummaging through Lieutenant Ilea's cabin. It was much the same feeling Kirk had while watching Decker with the probe and his cabin viewer. Technology would have long ago made privacy impossible, except that this had only made it more precious and desirable. And in the close confines of starship life, respect for another's privacy had become a powerful tradition. "'This could be exactly what he needs,' said McCoy. He was inspecting a colorful little headband which Chapel had found. She'd remembered Ilia once mentioning the head ornaments like this played some role in the life of a dolphin female. The headband was a delicately plated thing which carried a rainbow of colors that shimmered like the plumage of an exotic tropical bird. McCoy had been surprised to see that it was made from dried leaves, and remembered hearing of the incredible beauty of Ilea's home planet. Where did you find that? It was Will Decker, arriving in response to the message they had sent. As he brought the Ilea probe into the cabin, he was eyeing the headband with surprise. Dr. Chapel found it here. We'd thought that if you had had some very personal item of Ilea's to show the probe... Well, that's certainly what you found, Doctor. Decker seemed to be watching the Ilea mechanism anxiously problems. Decker watched the probe another moment, seeming relieved to see that it was ignoring the head ornament completely. They call it a love band, said Decker. The act of a male touching it can sometimes trigger strong sexual urges in the delton female. Chappell was amused to see McCoy immediately drop the headband onto a tabletop. The ship's doctor probably had no objections to the exotic triggering but he undoubtedly preferred choosing his own time and place. Wearing it in certain ways signifies that the Delton woman is seeking a mate, or seeking mating, or some other sexual thing. Delton's sex customs are considerably different from human ones. Decker said McCoy, "'we're not suggesting that you mate with the thing.' McCoy hesitated. Was it wise to talk this openly in front of the probe?' but it showed no reaction at all to McCoy's calling it a thing, nor to the talk of sex and mating. "'Look, Doctor, I'd mate with a photon warhead if it would help,' said Decker. "'But sex won't trigger any Ilea memory patterns because she has no memories of making love with me. Obviously, if that had ever happened, I wouldn't be here.' Decker was reminding them that there were very practical reasons for requiring celibacy oaths of Deltons serving on Starfleet vessels. Part of the problem was that humans had difficulty settling for routine earthly sex afterward. Even more critical, however, was the fact that the long evolvement of the Deltan race had not only heightened their sensuality, but it also resulted in the sex act becoming a complete union in which both body and mind were shared. Deltans, of course, found this natural and pleasant, but the experience of actually becoming part of another person's mind almost always incapacitated the human partner. If you'd rather try something besides the headband, Chapel began. No, this could be the perfect way to learn how far its memory patterns go. It's not only a very personal item, this particular band was also a gift from me. He started to pick up the head ornament, but Chapel reached for it first. It still might be better if I held it, she said, holding it out in front of the probe's eyes. There was no reaction to it. Chappell moved the lovely band nearer to the Ilea probe, turning it so that the shimmer of colors caught the probe's attention. It eyed the ornament, puzzled, and yet appearing to be drawn to it, too. Chappell placed it on the probe's hand. Decker watched, too, but his thoughts were racing ahead. Their present position could hardly be much more than three hours from Earth. With no word from Kirk of other progress, this probe was probably their last chance to contact or even learn anything helpful about the mysterious intruders. The Ilea mechanism ran its fingers over the color shimmer on the ornament. "'Do you remember my giving that to you?' asked Decker. When Decker had met Ilea on her home planet, he had no idea what the headband symbolized. In his abysmal ignorance of Delton customs, he had bought it for her, thinking it merely a pretty ornament. And she had accepted it, marking him as hers.' and he would have been if he had not run. The probe was turning toward the dressing-table mirror and began tentatively to lift the ornament toward its head. Both McCoy and Chapel threw a quick look to Decker, but he made no objection. McCoy felt a wave of sympathy for the young man. Under other circumstances they would all be remembering a dozen old jokes about exotically programmed androids and sex-starved spacemen but Decker's grief had left no doubt about the depth of his affection for the Dalton woman, and McCoy had no illusions about the agony which Decker must be feeling having to deal with such a perfect duplicate of her. Wait. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Dr. Chappell uh, has, a, you know, a bit of a pivotal role in yeah, this. Yeah, she's a
0: first-class MD now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of stills of this
2: scene, too. I remember mm-hmm. saying, you know, and you're wondering, what is that? And I They sort of, in the film, they brush over that.
1: They they brush she over and it's, she it's wore, not you wore this on and it's not in the theatrical version
2: right. So it's uh, it's a bit odd, but it's funny because in my mind I don't remember because I watched the tape right. over and over again. But it was in there was a bit of it in the ABC version absolutely and that I always remembered that I of liked course. that scene
1: too. I, I, I thought too.
0: Majel was great in the scene as yeah. well. I love when they're in the rec room looking at all the old enterprises and she says that was Captain Archer's ship. No. Yeah.
1: No, that never happened.
0: <laughs> I can't believe for a, a, a franchise that values canon, it clearly shows you what enterprises are, are, are the history of right. the enterprise. And then they just create the ship out that doesn't exist. <laughs> I don't get it. Why well, did it have to be the Enterprise? right. Well, yeah, right. They, Why couldn't it have been the Columbia? Because right. they, right? Because I know they, they wanted she- to call it the freaking Enterprise. I know, you know for, because they called it Enterprise and not Star Trek, as right. though people wouldn't know it was a Star Trek show. Exactly. Anyway, don't well, get look, me started.
1: This this last scene section that we have is actually, um, I remembered it from when from reading the novel twice before seeing the movie, and I remembered this scene so well, and I was disappointed in the movie for not. Doing this scene like it was described, mm-hmm. the creation of the walkway to the Viger Island. Well, and then you had your chance to address that. Then exactly, and I'm so glad had the chance to recreate that as it would have been. And it and, was.
2: I remember seeing the director's cut. I think in the mixing stage was the first mm-hmm. time I saw yeah. it. I was like, wow, yeah. there uh, it is. We did
0: the, we did I, the book. I, you know, it, it, And that's one of my favorite sequences in the director's edition, I have to say. I really, I just think that's spectacular. And I love hearing you talk about it. Because here we're talking about devouring this as a kid, yeah. you know? And I had all these images in your mind. And then to have the chance X number of years later to, to actually realize
1: what you had. It ha- was such a gift uh, and such an honor. And it it's a highlight of my life.
0: It's really it's really extraordinary and it's just like we constantly hear these stories on the show recently we did an episode with Doug Drexler mm-hmm. talking about meeting Bob Justman you sitting next to Rob Burnett whose first movie that he ever directed was with Bill Shatner yeah. I mean it's just it's it's great and you know for those you know who are younger and artists who are at the beginning of their careers right. you know it should, I hope in some way it's inspiring you know your parents may be saying you know take the safe Go to law school, you know, or, or, or get your, your medical degree. You know, forget this silly dream. Get a job. <laughs> get a life. But, you know, if you follow your dreams, you know, sometimes they do come true.
1: Well, here's, here's one of those scenes that yeah. inspired my imagination and uh, I was able to return to many years later. The ILEA probe had taken Kirk and the others by turbolift to a dimly lit maintenance shaft. It was obvious that Viger knew every detail of the Enterprise as its probe then led them unerringly to a small maintenance lift and motioned them to step onto it. There was hardly room for all five of them as the inspection lift then began travelling upward. An access hatch slid aside over their heads and suddenly the lift was carrying them out in the open. It came to a stop and they found themselves standing, without spacesuits, on the surface of the saucer hull of the Enterprise. Kirk heard a surprised gasp from Decker, and realized that he had verily nearly done the same. The sweep and symmetry of their starship was bathed in the golden glow. It looked almost impossibly lovely. "'We are in an atmosphere and gravity envelope, just as promised,' announced Spock. "'Fascinating.' McCoy gave the probe a quick look, as if suspecting some trickery. Out here their lungs should have ruptured, and their frozen bodies should now be floating about weightlessly. The Ilea probe was already walking out toward the front edge of the saucer section. It was only as Kirk turned to follow her that he realized that Decker's gasp of astonishment had little to do with the look of Enterprise from here. Even in Kirk's eyes the starship seemed to shrink in size as he took in the awesome reality surrounding them. A fleet of starships could have maneuvered in the vastness of V'ger's brain hemisphere. Yet, according to Spock, This great hemisphere was far from being mere empty space. It was actually a great complex of electromagnetic wave-particles which carried Viger's conscious thoughts, just as the nerves and neurons in Kirk's brain did the same for him. And Kirk's mind reeled as he realized that the sheer immensity of all this was linked also to the equally incredible storage capacity of the memory crystals described by Spock. They were led to the edge of their ship's saucer section. Here, the ILEA mechanism stopped and stood looking out toward the brain hemisphere, the nucleus which they had examined earlier on the bridge viewer. "'Undoubtedly our destination,' said Spock quietly. "'We have begun to move in that direction.' Spock was right, no doubt of it. The glittering nucleus was looming much larger. To Kirk it began to resemble more a floating jeweled island than the central part of a living brain." Vija's beginning, said the probe. It was pointing toward the nucleus. Vija's beginning, asked Kirk. What does that mean? The probe continued to ignore him. Ilea, help us. At least explain to us what's happening. It was Decker trying again, but the probe gave no sign of hearing him. The brain center was much closer and the bright pillar of light at its center was more pronounced, glaring almost blindingly bright. They had come to only a dozen ship lengths for away from it. Its finely detailed structural patterns were so unlike anything in Kirk's experience that he could not even guess at their function. But at least it appeared to be solid matter of some kind. They would be able to find footholds to move about on if that was intended. Kirk's mind raced. They were only moments away, and he had no illusions but that he would be expected to provide Viger with its creator. He might conceivably get by with even a convincing description. Certainly that had satisfied humans for enough centuries. But how could he even guess at what would satisfy Viger? Veger's beginning. Think! Spock saw a machine planet, but it was located on the other side of our galaxy, far beyond the range of our starships. What could possibly make something from there believe that its creator is here? Kirk came out of his thoughts and suddenly, realizing that something unexpected had just happened. Of course, the starship's motion had stopped, but they were a ship length or more away from the nucleus. Jim! Captain! Exclamations from McCoy and Decker as a pattern of tumbling shapes came rushing toward them at alarming speed. They appeared to be great translucent rectangles of light which were somehow solidifying into matter as they came. Then the shapes made a sweeping pirouette and settled in gently between them and the hemisphere's island nucleus. Kirk literally disbelieved his own eyes for a moment. The shapes had formed themselves into a floating pathway across to whatever awaited them over there. The starship nudged up with a gentle bump against the pathway pattern, and then the Ilea probe stepped out onto the first floating shape. Like a glowing ice flow, it supported the probe as it stepped to another, then another. McCoy started to throw a frowning, I refuse to do that, look, but Kirk followed the probe immediately, with Spock and Decker stepping onto a floating shape behind him. McCoy was left with no option but to follow. He was surprised and immensely relieved to find that caution was unnecessary. The glowing shapes seemed almost intelligently anxious to accommodate each footstep, with perfect traction and balance. Ten minutes, Captain,' said Spock. The Vulcan had his tricorder out, scanning and examining with each step of the way. Kirk had a sick feeling that they had run out of time. There was nothing that could be seen or said which could solve anything in that short a time. The gigantic machine must not have any suspicion that he had no answer about the creator. Viger would no more hesitate destroying carbon-based life on that planet than McCoy would hesitate over destroying cancer cells if he ever ran across them. As they reached the complex, their eyes could pierce the light glare enough to see that its center area sloped upward from all directions, like a giant inverted bowl. The slightly convex sides steepened at the top, where the shining pillar of light beamed out of a wide opening. There was no doubt now where they were being led. This nucleus area, said Spock, checking his tricorder, is older than the rest of Viger, Although it is still well beyond our understanding, none of it appears as advanced as the rest of Viger." Which fits an idea I've been forming, said McCoy. From an anatomical point of view, I would describe this as the nucleus of a hemisphere brain all around us. Spock was suddenly very interested. "'Are you thinking primal brain, doctor?' McCoy nodded, turning to Kirk. "'I don't know how much of this will help, but I guess that this place here connects what V'ger is now with what V'ger used to be.' They were climbing up a steepening incline only a dozen steps from the brilliant light beam. They could see that the opening out of which it rose was as wide as an amphitheater. Kirk found himself hurrying, feeling rising excitement. Great pillars surrounded it. If a machine could have conceived Stonehenge, this was such a place. Shielding their eyes from the light glare, they clambered to the edge of the opening and looked down onto it, and came to a shuffling, shocked halt. There was a stunned surprise on every face, except that of the probe. It simply indicated and said, Vija! The wide concave area below them was actually not unlike a small amphitheater. The pillar of light somehow carried the feeling of a sacred flame, as if marking something immeasurably sacred to Viger. That object was pitted and damage-scarred, but still, undeniably, a twentieth-century space probe from planet Earth. "'I doubt that Viger will believe the truth,' murmured Spock. "'You can be damned certain it won't,' said McCoy." Well, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So, you know, th- this this novel uh really uh sparked my imagination and it it made my enjoyment of the film so much more obviously than a lot of other people. Sure. Uh because uh it became real to me first before I saw
2: it. Me too, and maybe that's why. I mean, uh, Star Trek the Motion Picture is is my favorite Star Trek movie. And I dare say I had an experience about five years ago where uh, I was dating this, uh, a film producer and she had never really watched Star Trek. Mm. So I, I curated, like, we watched 20 episodes and then we watched Star Trek The Motion Picture. And she loved Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm. And she was like, wow, this is a great extension of the original series. And people forget, it gets this bad rap as Star Trek The Slow Motion Picture. But I dare say Star Trek The Motion Picture is closer to the original series than any other Star Trek movie because Agreed. the characters might not be in the uh, the right kind of place, but you still have the humor, the conversations, the scene with McCoy in Kirk's quarters. Mm-hmm. One I, of the great moments
0: in Star Trek history. I disagree with you, Rob, because I, I think they, they, they are exactly where they need to be, the characters. I think that people expected them to be exactly like they were in Turnabout Intruder when they left them in nineteen sixty nine. What I love about Star Trek the Motion Picture is that they is have that they changed have changed. In the oh, well, That's, right. I totally agree with
2: that. But I mean the general public wanted right. the, the the great thing about Star Trek the Motion Picture is you have these three men who hate where they're at in life. Right. Right. You know, they're not happy people. Yes. And and the whole point of the film is that this family, these three men that really they complete one another. Yeah. They come back together. They are together. Three parts of the same person. And that's what makes the story such a joy to watch, at least it's for exactly, me.
0: Totally. Exactly. I mean to have, you know, Spock trying to resolve all these issues with who he is and Kirk who's just miserable behind a desk, you know, and McCoy, God knows where the, I, in the book it, it explains where McCoy what right. McCoy was up to. Wasn't he dealing with Fabrini Medicine? Yeah. Yep. You know, which is a reference to um, you know, the world uh, is hollow. The world is hollow. Another thing we
2: learn in the novelization, correct. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think you're right. But it's just it. It was not what was so great about Star Trek: The Motion Picture is I was growing up. I was as old as I ever had been at the time. <laughs> I was going in from elementary school to junior high school. Right. I was entering Making my the transition teenage years form. And and Star Trek: The Motion Picture was so adult. Yeah. You know, it it it. As I was getting older, my this childhood love I had of Star Trek. Was also maturing mm-hmm. and growing up, and and it was it was so that this thing that I loved as a kid was also maturing before my eyes. Right, right, sure, was amazing.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And and you know, you talk about this last scene, you know, which I think you really brought to new life in the director's edition. But boy, I love the production design. I love it's, it's beautiful that uh, where Viger that atrium that that mm-hmm. the amphitheater that Viger is in. Um, and you know in, in the news lately Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 have you know both left the solar system now. Right. I always wish they had called it Voyager 1 or Voyager 2. I always hated <laughs> Voyager 8, you know, because it was like Voyager 6, six. Voyager, six. Voyager six. 6 because um it was um it was like there's never going to be a Voyager 6 and it's like oh man and it's like uh
1: But in a way I'm glad because yeah. it it makes it that that's a different universe ah. that it, it's it's not our universe and that's okay. It's, it's okay. you the one where the eugenics wars happened. That's correct. Okay, exactly. That's the universe. That but isn't Stark it cool? In. I mean, the
2: the heli- it's called the heliosphere that it, it right. left the Voyager, and and there was a there was a um, an infographic that NASA put out this yeah. week, and it's still traveling at at something like 179 thousand miles,
0: you know. It's amazing. A second or some it's something That's just light
2: but it's not that fast. But I it's, remember at JPL <laughs> totally very they, fast. they
0: have the replica of the Voyager, and it's right. like you lay there. It is right, V'ger. so it's so cool, and, and it's real.
2: I mean, the idea that Star Trek technology is still influencing, you know, whether it's an iPad, whether it's our iPhones, that that this that Voyager is this real thing that's still inspiring people forty years later as
0: it crosses into interstellar space. People also forget. I think you you mentioned they say oh, the slow motion picture. People are watching on a home video. The experience of seeing that movie in a theater is very, very different. Yes. I can say that about when I saw it when I was 11 or 12 years old as a kid. But I can also say that when we went to see the director's edition of mm-hmm. DGA or at Paramount. It, it's a different movie on the big screen yeah. because it is the only Star Trek it movie that was really belongs on the big screen. You know, as much as we all love Khan, mm-hmm. that's a TV episode. Yeah. It's not cinematic. It's just a wonderful you know entertaining adventure uh you know with some heart and some pathos and it wears its emotions on its sleeve and you know still i'm not in any way diminishing con but that i always even at the time i said you know this is not a motion picture right this is you know it's a movie
2: i mean uh, as much as i can criticize jj's film it wasn't until the 2009 star trek that star trek once again got its due on the big screen sure
1: exactly
0: uh, no, absolutely. Because none of these movies are particularly cinematic that follow the motion picture. Right. Because of course they were all cursed with these really low budgets, and you know, and 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 then this game that they started to play, which was like, how can this be like Khan? Because after the success right. of Khan, they only wanted to imitate Khan, they to keep it which in they're still playing. Card. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: they're still playing. Well, to look, this, this is day. this has been a bit of a of a, a long episode for us yeah, yeah absolutely well you know <laughs> look there's more to tell later there's a lot
0: more to tell we're going to be going back in time to revisit uh, we will revisit this place again and again <laughs> and again because we think it's worth it we think there's a lot to mine from um, the uh, story of Star Trek The Motion Picture not only our personal experiences but I'm sure our audience has a lot of stories to share as well about their first experience with Star Trek The Motion Picture Rob I hope you'll join us again because there's a lot to talk about Unpack. I can never have enough talk of Star Trek the Motion Picture in my life. <laughs> yeah. Well that that's great. Well, and Darren, a sp- very special thank you for taking the time to record those fantastic excerpts from the novel. Thanks. Uh, it was fun. It, it, let me just ask you before we go. Is there w- w- if w- what's your favorite scene in the in the book?
1: You know, I have to say that uh I don't know if I have a favorite scene. Um I I just I just love uh all the sort of in-between stuff. That yes. isn't in the film. The mm-hmm. connective tissue. Well, and the fact that
0: Will Decker was Matt Decker's son Correct. and all Correct.
1: that. Correct. Um, but I, I, I do love the last scene that I did here. Uh, you know, showing the uh, the connection of V'ger's brain complex mm. and them stepping up onto the surface of the Enterprise. You know,
0: Rob, so often people are criticizing. People who are obsessed with canon as old and out of touch, and it's like, what's the big deal about canon? This book is. N- is nothing but canon. It delights and and revels in canon. Can you talk a little bit well, about? Well, yeah.
2: It? What was so amazing is this book expanded the Star Trek universe in my mind. I mean, we can we can laugh and joke about the 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 sexuality that's that's that's, that's in this book, but it was really interesting. And to yeah. my developing mind, I mean, having a love coach, you know, and and reading about, and it was presented in even though we know. Roddenberry was kind of a legend, but he loved women the same way we did. And I'm 12 years old, and I'm reading about what a progressive society this future is. Right. And even though I didn't, I couldn't quantify it in my own mind. Everything, whether it was Admiral Nagura, whether it was talking about Kirk uh, and his girlfriend, right. and his how he thought about things, and the the what Vulcans felt, and McCoy and Fabrini medicine, all of it was an explosion of all of these disparate parts of classic Star Trek all put together in a book. Right. I mean, it felt like I'm, I'm listening to somebody who really understood, and it was written by Roddenberry, so he mm-hmm. did understand, what Star Trek was. And the same way I felt about Star Trek, this book solidified the fact that I was right in my love of the canon and of the Star no Trek universe. And no matter
1: what the differences were in this new stage of development, there still was connectivity. Oh yeah. There still was was enough sinew to tie it all together and not, you know, throw away the stuff that had occur- occurred in the past, but embrace it and include it.
2: And I have to say, you know, Vonda McIntyre, who then took up the mantle and wrote the Star Trek II and Star Trek III novelizations, oh, wow. she did a fantastic job also of the tradition of what this book set up. And especially her Star Trek II novelization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really expanded that story. And, you know, she, of course, wrote the, the novel, that f- the first original Pocket novel that followed up the motion picture novelization, which was The Entropy Effect, right. which also went on and expanded the Star Trek universe. I mean, these, and in my mind, these were things that just made that universe richer and, and, and more
0: important and more adult and more real to me. Absolutely. That's great. Well, look, again, thank you, Rob, for joining us. Darren, thank you for your hard work on uh, uh, basically translating these to audio. I want to remind everybody you can follow Inglorious Trek Experts on Twitter and Instagram at Inglorious Trek, as well as on Facebook, where you can continue the conversation by suggesting show topics for future episodes, as well as Star Trek The Motion Picture special reports um, throughout the year. And uh, give us feedback on every episode. In addition, if you liked what you hear, please rate us five stars at Apple Podcasts. You can hear new episodes of Inglourious Experts every Sunday wherever you listen to the podcast. And if you're a fan of Star Trek Discovery, don't miss our all-new podcast. I guess it's not all-new anymore, but just don't miss our podcast, <laughs> Disco Nights, with host Chase Masterson and special guests every week. New episodes premiere every Thursday night. And finally, a very special thanks to Bill Ritter, producer Natalie Miscali, and everyone at the Electric Surge Network for making the show possible We couldn't do it without you. And uh, until next week, on behalf of Robert Meyer Burnett, Darren Doctorman, and myself, Mark A. Altman, keep on trekking, and gloriously, of course, shh.